Last week we, we talked about understanding sin, knowing what sin was, why it was so deadly dangerous. And despite knowing what sin was and understanding why sin is so deadly dangerous, I'm going to go out on a limb and say we've all sinned this week. We knew what it was. We knew how dangerous it was. We knew how deadly it was. We knew what the Bible said about it. And yet we still gave in to it in one way or another for one reason or another. So that leaves us in a dilemma. What do we do? What do we do with our sin once we have given ourselves to it? Temptation has come. Maybe we fought it for a period of time. But then eventually we gave in to that desire. We did the things we knew we weren't supposed to do. We, we either didn't meet the mark that we were setting in, in our service and our devotion to Jesus. Or we just willfully and intentionally crossed a line. So what do we do? If you're like me, then there are a couple of ways you try to, to deal with your sin after you have given in to it. One is to let it be. Right? Shamefully... I have to admit, there is a temptation to deal with my sin by simply ignoring it and letting it be. When I let my deal with my sin in this way, I, I just let my mind run however it wants to. Or I start justifying my sin. Or I minimize how bad my sin really is. Or I shift the blame onto other people. If they weren't like this, I wouldn't act like that. Um, or I blame it on the circumstances. If this hadn't happened, I, I wouldn't have responded in that way or done this particular thing. Either way, all I'm really doing is saying my sin isn't my fault. Now when we do this, we, we minimize, we justify, we, we come up with all these reasons why our sin doesn't hurt others. It's not that big of a deal. But the problem is, when we let it be, it, it will be. Right? Sin doesn't just go away on its own. It doesn't say, well, okay, you gave in this time, we're going to move on. Every time we give in to that desire, we feed that monster within us and it gets stronger. And when we let it be, it gets stronger and stronger and stronger and it eventually overwhelms us. And what happens is one of two things. Either we just go headlong into a significant season of sin or we... We just sort of sink into hopelessness because there's no way we can ever get out of this anyway. This I tried and eventually I gave in to it. It's always there. I can't do this. I'm just going to blow it. Why bother? Just let it be. Another way I try to deal with my sin is to let it beat me down. You know, when we know, we understand sin, how deadly dangerous it is, how it is shameful, how it defiles us. We know the wages of sin. We, we know all of these things. We know sin is the reason Jesus died. Then our sin probably is something we take seriously if we believe all those things. So what can happen is we sin and we feel bad about it. Which That's a good response. But the wrong response to that feeling bad over our sin is to just stay there. Stay in that state of my sin is on me. I'm condemned I'm unworthy. I'm useless. What's the point of trying to pray? I mean, it's not like God's going to hear, look what I just did. What's the point of trying to read my Bible? It's not like God's going to speak to me from it. Look at what I, I, I've done in my life. When we let our sin beat us down, we get discouraged. We get depressed even. We get irritable. I do. I get irritable and angry. 
My prayer life suffers. My devotional life suffers. My relationship (coughs) with Jesus all but goes away because I don't do anything to try to further my relationship with Christ because, again, why bother? I'm condemned and I'm unworthy. Really, I can say for me, when I let my sin (coughs) beat me down, my relationships with everyone and everything really suffers. I lose motivation to try to do anything at all because what's the point? This is all I am. This is all I will ever be. And I could never rise above this. Now, I'll go out on a limb and say these things are probably familiar to most of us in here today. But neither of those are the correct way to deal with our sin. Psalm 51 shows us the proper way to deal with our sin once we've sinned. So if you haven't already, open your Bible to Psalm 51, page 436 in your pew Bible. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. The psalmist is is David. And David says, Be gracious to me, God, according to your loving kindness, or according to your faithfulness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Wipe out my wrongdoings. Wash me thoroughly from my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my wrongdoings and my sin is constantly before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in guilt and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in secret you will make wisdom known to me. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Cleanse me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and wipe out all of my guilty deeds. Create in me a clean heart, God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me. With a willing spirit, then I will teach wrongdoers your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips so that my mouth may declare your praise. If you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good design. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the righteous sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole, offer, whole burnt offerings. Then the bulls will be offered on your altar. The title of the message this morning is Confessing Sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And Lord, we come today... Lord, as people who know what it is to struggle with sin, as people who who understand what Your Word says about the deadly danger of sin, we recognize sin is against You. We recognize sin is the reason Jesus died. And yet, Lord, we struggle. Our sinful nature is there. It pulls, it pulls. And as the song we sang today says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Father, I know that the enemy would love for us to let our sin be and just leave it there. Let it just always be in our heart. Let it grow. Let us continually feed the monster until it controls our life. And he would like us to let it beat us down till we feel worthless, unworthy to ever come to you. 
and worthy to cry out for forgiveness. And we would give up on our service and our devotion to you. Today, Lord, make us to know these are both the ploys of the enemy. It's not you. That voice of condemnation we may hear is not you. That voice telling us our sin is no big deal, that's not you. The voice telling us that we'll never do better, we'll never overcome. This is the best we could ever hope for, just give up now, that's not you. Make us to believe deep in our hearts that that is not you. And as we look at this passage and we see what it is to confess our sin, let us do this. Father, let us, when we blow it, turn to you, cry out to you, confess our sin to you, stand up and move out, determined to live for you again. Let us look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who is the the propitiation for our sins. He is the sacrifice. Make us to remember Your word says Jesus is our advocate after we've blown it. How amazing to know that while your standard is for us to not sin, when we do sin, we have an advocate in Jesus. Let us trust that, believe that, live in light of that. Fill me today with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech. Let me speak your word and your ways for your glory. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Psalm 51 may be familiar to most of us, but it it is a psalm where the historical context, the background information of when the psalm was written, is exceedingly important to help us understand it. So here's the, the background of Psalm 51. At a time when kings go out to war, King David stayed home. And one evening as King David was lounging around on the top of his palace, He he spied a a woman on the top of her house bathing. Now, she wasn't doing anything wrong. That was the way it was done. The problem wasn't with her being out and about and bathing at that time. The problem was with the king not being at war with his troops. But he didn't just see her there and turn away quickly. He saw her there. He looked at her. He lusted after her. He continually thought about her until he asked someone, Who is that woman I saw bathing? He found out her name was Bathsheba. She was the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of David's mighty men. David's mighty men were soldiers. They were David's elite special forces type soldiers who were wholly devoted to doing his will. David then, lusting after this woman in the position of a king, sent for her and had her to come to him. And then he slept with her. Now again, Bathsheba is often given a bad rap, but when the king orders you to come, you come. And when the king kind of orders you to lay down in the bed, well, you don't have a lot of choice in that as well. Bathsheba is not... The bad guy in this story, King David is. And she, he has his fun, he sends her on her way. And after a period of time, she replies back to David and says, I'm pregnant. The child is yours because Uriah has been away at war. So David, not wanting to take responsibility for his sin, he sends for Uriah the Hittite. And he has him bring word from the battle. And he brings him in 
And he has the word, and he sits him down, and he gets him and has some food with him. And then he tells Uriah, go on home. Be with your wife, and then go back tomorrow. Now David doesn't care about Uriah getting to spend time with his wife. David's hope is that Uriah will spend time with his wife, and then when the baby is born, it will look like it was Uriah's child. But Uriah was a man of great integrity. And Uriah, as a soldier in the Lord's army, refused to go and lie with his wife while the rest of the army and the ark of God was at battle. And so he slept in the castle in the doorway that night. David finds out in his anger and he says, why have you done this? Uriah again says, God forbid that I should go be with my wife while the armies of the Lord are at battle. So David has another plan. He invites Uriah over again, and this time he gets him all liquored up, thinking a drunk person will go back home and will be with his wife, and it's all going to work out. But a drunk Uriah has more integrity than a sober David does at this time, and Uriah still will not go and be with his wife. He lays again in the, in the door of the castle and refuses to go out, knowing now there's nothing he can do to make it look like the child is not born out of wedlock, is something wrong, David has another plan. And he gets a letter, and he writes it down, and he let, makes a letter to Joab, and he says, this is given to Uriah. Start a battle, get it really going hot, and then have Uriah right in the midst of it, and when the battle's hot, withdraw, and abandon this man to die in battle. Send me word when it's done. And he folds it up, he seals it with the king's seal, and he hands the man his death sentence. And Uriah takes it and gives it to Joab. Joab, the faithful general to David, starts the battle, puts Uriah at the front, has everyone abandon him, and he dies miserably, betrayed by his king, betrayed by his general. After a time when it was kind of okay for Bathsheba to take another husband, David reaches out and he takes her into his house. What a kind and compassionate king he is. One of his mighty men's wife has died and is left alone. And rather than leave her destitute, this great and compassionate king brings her in and takes her as his wife to provide for her. All the world thought that's what happened. David had escaped the notice of man with what he had done. But 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven tells us the thing David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. It wasn't long for God sent a prophet named Nathan to confront David about his sin. David had always known his sin was wrong. He always knew what he had done was bad. He, he had to know deep down. He had to know he could not get away with it. David knew in Numbers, Moses said, if you hide your sin, be sure it will find you out. But he tried to hide his sin. And his sin did find him out. After being confronted with his sin, he had to deal with his sin. He had to make things right with God. And he had to get his life back on track. And at some point during this process, after being confronted by Nathan and getting his life back on track, David wrote two psalms, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. It's interesting. David 
did try to let his sin be. And just hope no one would notice. But again, I believe he always knew God had noticed. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality failed as with the dry heat of the summer. When David tried to let his sin be, his sin made him miserable. How many of us can say we've been there? We understand what David's saying right there. Here's something we may not know. Revivalist Leonard Ravenhill said about this, David had one of the most blessed experiences in the world. And the blessedness was that he was miserable about his sin. Listen, dear friend, if you try to let your sin be and it makes you miserable, that is a good sign. That is the hand of the Lord upon you. If, on the other hand, you try to let your sin be, and it's not bothersome, it doesn't make you miserable. That is not a good sign. That is not a sign God is okay with your sin. It's not a sign God has worked it out and you have a special deal. The book of Hebrews tells us God only chastises His children. That those who are illegitimate, not really His... They don't face that chastisement. So if you can let your sin be and it doesn't make you miserable, that's not because your sin is okay with God. That's because you're really not a born again child of God to begin with. You're lost. And we should all pray, dear Lord, never allow me to let my sin be. Make me miserable over my sin till I repent of it and confess it to you. Now, once David had confessed his sin, dealt with his sin, he didn't let it beat him down. He moved on with his life, serving the Lord, faithful to the Lord, loving God, joyful in God. Now, I'll be honest, I I mean, I've never done anything comparable to what David has done in human measurements. So I wonder, why do I let my sin beat me down, keep me down, and not... Confess it and move on with my life. Is it because David is godlier or I'm godlier than David was? Is it because I'm more sensitive to my sin than David was to his sin? It's not either of those. It's that David knew something that I often forget. That we have to take our sin to God and leave it with him. Once David confessed his sin, and le- he, he left it with God. And we'll see this throughout the psalm. So there are three ways for us to, to take our sin to God and leave it with Him. First is to confess our sin to God. What we see in verse 1, I'll probably say this several times. It may be the most important truth for us to remember. Be gracious to me, God. According to your faithfulness, according to the greatness of your compassion, wipe out my wrongdoings. As David begins to confess his sin to God, 
He starts with the character, the nature of God. The basis of his plea for forgiveness is God. Who God is and what God is like. He asked God to be gracious, to be compassionate. He asked God to wipe out his wrongdoings. He asked God to be gracious to him. And he asked him to do it because God is faithful to do these things. David does not base his plea on David. David doesn't say, God, forgive me because I'm really not that bad of a guy. He doesn't say, God, forgive me because it's not as bad as what Saul did. He doesn't say, God, forgive me because of all of the other times I did do what you wanted me to do. He didn't say, God, forgive me because I'm the king of Israel. He didn't say, God, forgive me because I am an Israelite. No. David's basis for going to God was the grace, the faithfulness, and the compassion of God. Our only basis for going to God and asking for forgiveness for our sin is the grace, the faithfulness, and the compassion of God. Our basis is never us. Who we are or what we have done or what we have not done in comparison to others. Our basis is always who God is and what God has done. This is what I would say is a humbling and an exciting truth. It's humbling because I can't go to God no matter what I've done on the basis of what I've done, on the basis of who I am, the reality For all of us, we never have any merit before God. Can you think, how hard is that in our culture for us? I mean, there is no matter what we do, we never go to God and say, God, you, you owe me. Or God, you ought to because I'm me. Or look at all of this other stuff. Our basis is, is never in our merit. We, we never earn An ounce of merit with God. Our only merit is stuff God has given us anyway. Our only basis for going to God is His character, His nature. He is gracious, He is faithful, He is compassionate. That is a humbling thought indeed. But it's also an exciting thought. Because It doesn't matter who I am or what I've done. I can still go to God. I don't have to have any merit of my own. And this is maybe you're different. Here's here's one of my struggles. I I struggle with, with this, this idea of not having any merit. And what I think is, okay, I've blown it. Now what I've got to do is show God. I've got to I've got to do some penance. And I've got to show God I'm really mournful. And I've got to show God I'm really sorry. And I've got to make the right decision for the next four days. And after a few days of doing all of these things that God wants me to do, then I can go to God and, and it'll be okay. Maybe you don't struggle with merit. Maybe you don't struggle with that. If you do, there's good news. You don't have to do that. It doesn't matter how bad your sin is or how often your sin was. 
You don't have merit. It's just God. And so we can always we can go to God. And regardless of what we've done, regardless of where we've been, regardless of how many times we've blown it. God is gracious. God is faithful. God is compassionate. And that's my basis anyway. That's an exciting, exciting thought. So we look at verse three. David says, I know my wrongdoings and my sin is constantly before him. Now, David takes full responsibility for what he had done. He doesn't say, well, she was on the roof bathing. He doesn't say, well, look how good looking she is. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't blame his wives for not being sensitive to his needs. He doesn't he doesn't blame anyone. David says, I did it. This was all my fault. I know my wrongdoings and my sin is before me. I did it. Verse four, David acknowledges his sin is against God, against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, again, I mentioned this last week, but the the list of people hurt by David's adultery is is lengthy. I mean, it's it's his own wives. It's Uriah. It's Bathsheba. It's Joab. It's the armies of Israel. Listen, I, I think I mentioned this last week as a soldier. One of the things you've got to know is your commanders have your back to find out your king wrote a letter and had you killed. Oh, my goodness. What a sin against his people. And yet. What David says is, I have sinned against you. Sin is always against God. This is why sin is so serious. Sin is always against God because God is the lawgiver. Right? God is the one who makes the law. And when we, when we violate that law God has given, what we're saying is, you can't tell me what to do. And so no matter who else gets hurt in the process of our sin, or if no one else gets hurt in the process of our sin, We have still thumbed our nose to Almighty God and said, I don't have to do what you've said. And that sin is absolutely and always against Him. Now, the reason we have to understand our sin is against God, it's one that helps us to understand how deadly, dangerous, and serious it is, but also look at what he goes on to say. I've done what is evil in your sight, so that you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Listen, if I don't understand my sin is ultimately against God, One, I'm not going to realize my sin is evil. Your sin is evil. My sin was just a mistake. But if I sinned against God, well, my sin is evil. I've sinned against a holy God. I've done what was wrong. And if I've sinned against a holy God and done what was wrong, then God is justified when he says something like the wages of sin is death. I deserve to be condemned. I deserve the wrath of God that that comes upon us. For sin. Again, this is one of those things. All sin makes us all guilty. The the wages of sin is death. Now, if I don't understand I've sinned against God, I'm going to think, well, that's that's a little much. All I did was lie. All I did was cheat. All I, I mean, I didn't kill anybody. Definitely, if I if I stab somebody to death, probably I deserve the wage of death there. But if I just lied. If I just stole a little something from somebody rich or from Walmart, I mean, they have all that money. Who cares? 
If I just looked at pornography and nobody saw it, it didn't hurt anybody. How does that make me worthy of death? Because it was sin against God. That's what makes us worthy of death because we've sinned. Now, David didn't have the depth of understanding about sin we have today because he didn't have the New Testament. He had as much as God's word as we do. However, we see in verse 5, David understood his sin was more than just an action. Behold, I was brought forth in sin, and in sin my mother conceived me. David knew sin was more than an act he had committed. He knew it was a part of his very being. Right? We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And again, that's a hard fact, but it's a fact. At the core of our being is a rebel who says, God will not rule over me. And that's why we sin. That's why we give in to it. When you take all of this together, you get a great picture of what it means to confess our sins to the Lord. Now the reason it's important for us to understand confession is because if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous, so He will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, the the Greek word used to confess there, it's more than just to say I've sinned. Confession is saying the same thing. So to confess my sin to God, I have to say the same thing about my sin God says about my sin. Well, what does God say about my sin? Well, God says my sin is one of the reasons I have no merit and I can only come on the basis of His character. God says my guilt and my sin is is all my fault. God says... My sin is ultimately against Him. God says, my sin is evil and it makes me worthy of death. God says, sin is often truly at the core of my being. And if we don't say those things about our sin, we're not confessing our sin. Now, again, this means when we confess our sin, if we're trying to deal with our sin, truly deal with our sin, we can't go to God and say, God, you know, I'm sorry I acted the way I acted, but you know how Kelly is. I mean, you'd act that way too. We can't do that. We can't blame others. We can't go to God and say, God, I did blow it, but I mean, look at these other people. Look at all they've done. That's, it was nothing in comparison to them. It's not what God says about our sin. To confess our sin, we have to take full responsibility. We have to say it is completely our fault. We have to say it is against God. It does make us guilty. And we have no basis for asking for forgiveness other than who God is and what God is like. And if we do not go with that basis, we do not receive this. The promise of being forgiven and cleansed is only for those who confess. We must say the same thing about our sins that God says. And when we do not, we create a barrier between God and us. If we want to take our sin to God and leave it with Him, we must confess our sin to God. Secondly, we must desire to be changed by God. 
we're going to take our sin to God and leave it with Him, we must have a genuine desire to change. We see this desire all throughout David's prayer. Look at verse 6. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the secret you'll make wisdom known to me. David knows what's going on in his life. What he's doing on the outside is not what God wants. What God wants is for David to be something on the inside. God isn't looking for a set of outward conformity to a set of rules. What God is looking for is inner transformation in our lives. He wants our our hearts to be changed. David continues this theme of being changed. Purify me and I will be clean. Cleanse me. And I will be whiter than snow. One of my commentaries said when David asked God to purify him, he was basically asking for God to unsin him. Right? To, to make it as though he, he did not sin. It was a word commonly used to describe the purification of a leper's house. Of course, you know the leprosy was defiled everything. So what did they do when they cleansed a leper's house? They had to unleprify it. Right? If there was... Any leper juice laying around, they had to get it up and wash it. If there was anything that had clothing that had had leper, the leper sores on it, they had to take it out and burn it. They had to make it as though the leper had never been in that house. And that's what David is asking for God to do in him. Make it as though I had never sinned. Cleanse me that thoroughly. Verse 9, David prays for God to hide his face. And to wipe out all of his guilty deeds. The desire here is for his sins to be gone so completely. God doesn't see them or take notice of them. Now up to the point in this psalm. David has been pleading for forgiveness again and again. Wipe out. Wash. Cleanse. Purify. Cleanse. Hide your face and wipe out. The repetition emphasizes the depth of David's grief and desire to change. And it becomes. It comes all the way in completion in verse 10. Create In me a clean heart, God, and renew a steadfast spirit within him. Right? And and, now the word clean, create, it's not like necessarily just renovate. It's not wipe it the surface clean. The word for create is the same word used in Genesis 1 and 2 when God created the world. And, And using that word speaks of two things. One, it speaks of David's understanding that only God could do what needed to be done to change him. Second, it speaks of knowing what he needs is to have his old heart basically taken out and God to give him something brand new. He can't be renovated and stay the same. He must be completely made new. Or to put it in New Testament terms, born again. Or to be... Regenerated is what he's wanting for God to make him different than he is. Sadly, all too often, what happens in our lives is we want to be forgiven of our sins. We, we don't want that to weigh on us. We don't want to feel separated from God. We certainly don't want judgment or condemnation or punishment to come into our lives. But what we don't want is for God to change us. We want to be saved from the penalty of our sins, but we don't want to be saved from the sin itself. We want God to forgive us so that our conscience is cleared and we don't feel bad, but 
We're holding on to this, and at some point, we're going back to it. Right? At some point, I am going to pick this up again because deep down, we like our sin. We like our sin. The sin we give in to the most, regardless of what it is, lust, gossip, anger, jealousy, uh, judgment, whatever. The sin we give in to the most, we enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, as Hebrews says. That's why we do it. We do it because of the pleasure it gives us. And so what we want is, God, forgive me so that I don't reap the harvest of sowing to the flesh. But God, don't change me because at some point in the future, I have every intention of doing that very thing again. When I'm stressful, I'm going to go over there and unleash my stress. When I feel angry, I'm going to act this way and say that to release the pressure valve. When I want to feel better about myself, I'm going to condemn others. When, when the time is right and I want to do it, I'm absolutely going to do it again. And what we have to desire is more than God to forgive our sins, but God to change our lives. To take away our bent to sinning. To take away our desire for that particular sin. We must desire God to change us in such a way, not only that we don't, we're not tempted by that sin, not only that we would always take the way out when that sin comes, but where we don't even like it, we don't even want it, we have nothing to do with it. Now think about the ways this would change our prayer life. In a general way, and specifically in our confession of sin. Instead of merely asking God to forgive us for our lust and help us not to lust again, we pray for God to create a, a clean heart that doesn't desire anyone but our spouse. Instead of merely asking God to forgive us for being judgmental and help us not to say judgmental things in public, we pray for God to create a clean heart in us so we can see people as Jesus did and look at them with compassion instead of judgment. Instead of merely asking God to forgive us for being covetous and help us not to desire the things of the world, we ask God to create a clean heart in us that is fully satisfied in Him and content with such things as we have. We could go on and on, but you get the idea. There must be a genuine desire within us to change. It's not enough to be sorry for sin if we aren't seeking God to change us in such a way that sin no longer has any appeal to us. But, but here's... The reality. If we don't want God to change us, we really aren't sorry for the sin to begin with. We may be sorry we got caught. We may be sorry that there are possible consequences. We may fear the fact that we're going to reap a harvest from it. But we're not sorry for the sin itself. If we're going to take our sin to God and leave it with Him, we must desire to be changed by God. And then finally we must... Rest in the grace of God. So confess our sins to God. Desire to be changed by God. Rest in the grace of God. Have you ever thought God's way of dealing with our sin is just too easy? I mean, you, you confess it and you're forgiven. And you're cleansed from all unrighteousness. Doesn't that seem a bit too easy? I mean, is this how we forgive one another when 
we sin against each other? Most often, if someone wrongs us, don't we have a process? They need to acknowledge they've wronged me. They need to confess to me they've wronged me. They need to feel bad for wronging me. They need to to feel bad for an appropriate amount of time, which I determine how long that is. They probably need to do some sort of penance, something to show me that they're sorry for what they've done. And then, after they've done all of these and they've checked, done through my checkbox of what needs to be done, then, then the relationship will be restored again. The greater the wrong, the longer the process. The greater the wrong, the more penance they need to do. The greater the wrong, the longer it takes for them to earn my trust and my friendship again. I'm sure none of you feel that way. That's just me. But what we're tempted to do, if you're like me, and this is how you see things, how you feel on the natural level, your temptation is... To think God's way of doling out forgiveness is just like ours. And what we have to do is confess it, feel bad, do penance, be good for a certain amount of time to earn God's trust and God's favor back again. We think since we make people jump through hoops to be forgiven and restored in the relationship, that God would do the same thing for us. Simply confessing our sins with a desire to be changed by God cannot possibly be enough. We must feel bad for a really long time. We must do penance. We must earn God's favor again. This is why we let our sin beat us down. And this is something we do not see in Psalm 51. David did not do this because this is not what God wants anyone to do. Verse 11, David prays not to be cast away from God's presence, not to lose the Holy Spirit. I love this part. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. I love verse 11 because of David's fear. David's fear isn't the punishment of God. David's fear is losing his relationship with God. David's greatest concern with his sin isn't that God's going to kill him, break his leg, or even make him not be king any longer. It's that he's going to lose God's presence in his life, that closeness with God he had lived with for so long. This is probably why David was called a man after God's own heart, despite the fact that he had sinned the way he did. Here's a hard question. What's our greatest fear when we sin? What do we fear most? The punishment of God? Reaping what we've sown? Or losing our intimacy with God? Reality. What should be is our our greatest fear is I don't want to lose God's presence. I don't want to lose the, the filling of the Spirit. The leading of the Spirit. In our lives. Restoring our fellowship with God should be our primary concern when we blow it. David asked God to to restore to him the joy of his salvation. 
and sustain him with a willing spirit. David had experienced joy in being delivered from God. He knew what that was. It was gone. It had been gone. We saw in Psalm 32 it had been gone during this time. And he, he wants that back again. A, a question. Is our relationship with Jesus a source of joy in our life? It should be. And if it's not, something's not right. And we ought to seek to find out why. Now, David goes on. He wants to be restored to this joy, disdained with the Spirit. Then, notice what he says. Then, I'll teach wrongdoers your ways. I'm going to have to hurry. Time is running out. And sinners will be converted to you. And I will take some time on this because this is really important. David being restored is then going to set out to teach God's word to others. Help others get back on the right way. Now, this is more than just saying, hey, once you're saved, you ought to go evangelize and tell others. It's more than that. Because notice what David's not. David's not afraid of what people are going to say. He's not afraid that as he goes out and tries to teach, they're going to say, wait, didn't you have Uriah killed? Who are you to talk to me about the way of righteousness? You know why David wasn't afraid of that? Not, not just because he was the king and could have them beat down. He wasn't afraid of that because David wasn't that. He had been restored. David, yes, that was true. Yes, I did that, but God forgave me. God restored me. And because God has forgiven me and restored me, I'm here to tell you, turn back. And He'll forgive you and restore you too. <clears throat> Listen, if you have a past and you've done things in the past that are not good, People are going to remember. It's a small town. You are never going to get past that living in Guyman, Oklahoma, if you did those things in Guyman, Oklahoma. So if you wait until nobody remembers what you've done and how, where you've been, and you're afraid they're going to say that, you will never, ever serve Jesus. Because some people will always remember. Some people, no matter what, you can spend a lifetime living a different life and there will be some people who only remember you in light of what you used to be. Don't worry about those people. God has forgiven you. God has restored you. And God's opinion is ultimately the only one who matters. <clears throat> so don't let what people may say about your past or your failures or your struggles hold you back. David goes on and he prays <clears throat> that he will, his tongue will joyfully sing of God's righteousness. That Lord will open his lips and he will praise the Lord. David's restoration would lead him to, to praise God, to sing his praise, to speak his praise. I think this is more than gather on Sunday and, and sing songs of praise. It's just David would just be kind of... Constantly saying, man, God is good. I mean, God's amazing. Can you believe the grace, the mercy, the faithfulness of our God? It's just a, a constant bubbling up from his heart about how good God is. And then, verse 16. <clears throat> For you not delight sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. Do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise. Again, here's, here's a temptation, right? We blow it. Now we, God, here's what I'm going to do, Lord. I, I know I blew it, but I'm going to give 
for the next month. I'm just going to give 20% of my tithes and I'll, I'll double that. And, and I'm going to fast three days this week and I'm going to share the gospel 14 times. And, and Lord, here's all of this stuff I'm going to do to show you I'm serious. Is that what God wants? Well, not according to verse 16. What He wants is for us to genuinely be sorry for our sins. God wants us to have a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart. Now, does God want us to confess our sins? Yes, He does. Does God want us to be different because He's forgiven us? Yes, He does. Does God want us to feel beat down because of the sin we've confessed? No, He does not. Does God want us to make some sort of a sacrifice to atone for, make up for our sin? No, He does not. Why does God not want us to make a sacrifice to atone for our sin? Because there's only one sacrifice that can atone for sin, and it is Jesus Christ. Either Jesus' death covers our sin, or our sin cannot be covered. We are forgiven not by what Jesus has done plus what we do. We are forgiven by what Jesus has done, the end. And if the blood of Jesus does not cover our sin, our sin cannot be covered. This is why the New Testament doesn't call on us to do acts of penance. This is why when we're forgiven, we're not told, okay, now that you've forgiven, do 12 of these and say 11 of those and pray five this ways. The Bible doesn't tell us to do that because the blood of Jesus covers us. And the sacrifice of Christ atones for our sin. And it is the only sacrifice God will ever ask for. And it is the only sacrifice God will ever accept to atone for our sins. There is nothing you or I could even remotely do to make up for our sins. As the old song says, Jesus paid it all. We don't beat ourselves up for our sins because Jesus was beat up for our sins. We don't have to be punished for our sins because Jesus was punished for our sins. We don't have to make a sacrifice for our sins because Jesus is the sacrifice for our sins. In Jesus, we find the fullness of the redemption, the grace, the faithfulness, and the mercy of God. Jesus paid it all. So we would not have to. Now, if this is the case, though, why does God want a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart? Because brokenness drives us to the cross. The broken heart drives us to the cross, which is where we find the grace of God the mercy, the redemption, and the faithfulness of God. This is true whether we're believers or unbelievers. If you're a believer here today, you're a disciple of Jesus and you've sinned, there should be a broken spirit and a broken and contrived heart over that sin and what that brokenness should do rather than leave you to to wallow in self-pity and self-condemnation, is flee to the cross to grab onto it and receive from Christ the grace and the the the, the grace and the strength to overcome it, the restoration, the cleansing, the joy of your salvation. If you're an unbeliever here today, you've never repented of your sins and believed in Jesus Christ, you ought to feel guilty about your sin. There ought to be a broken and a contrite heart over your sin, but not so that you'll feel unworthy, not so that you will wallow in self-pity and self-condemnation, but so that you too will fling to the cross 
And you will grab on. And you will receive grace and mercy and cleansing from Almighty God. And a joy that cannot be put into words. To trust and rest in God's grace. It is to stop beating yourself up over your sin. And trust what Jesus did for you on the cross. It is to stop trying to atone for your sin and trust in the atoning work of Jesus in your place. It is to stop trying to earn God's favor through your good deeds and receive the favor that comes through being accepted in the Beloved. It is to trust what Jesus has done. To trust in God's grace. To take away the sin, the guilt, and the condemnation. And then we... Go out and we tell others about the grace of God while speaking His praises for how good and how wonderful He is. Let's stand with our heads bowed and with our eyes closed. I just want to ask you quickly, how are you dealing with your sin? Are you letting it be? Are you letting it make you miserable? If you are, You're just going to get more and more miserable. This is especially true if you're a believer. God will never let a disciple of Jesus be comfortable in his or her sin. The Holy Spirit will always bring conviction that will make you miserable until we take that sin to God and we let Him deal with it. Are you letting your sin beat you down? If you are, then you probably feel like you're carrying a heavy burden. Jesus doesn't want you to carry the burden of sin. He died on the cross so the burden could be lifted. Now He cries out, Come to Me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He describes this rest as rest for your souls. If you want to lay this burden down and find rest for your souls, then you need to to go to God through Jesus. Confess your sins with a genuine desire to change. God will give you rest in your soul and allow you to rest in His grace. We'll have a time to respond and you can come forward. You can pray where you are. The key thing is to respond to God this time. We'll have just a a moment. If you need rest from your sin, if you need the, the burden to be taken away, cry out to Jesus at this time.